Good evening. There's a prayer I like to pray after receiving Holy Eucharist. It's a prayer of self-dedication to our Lord Jesus Christ. It was written by St. Ignatius of Loyola, and it goes like this. Lord, take all my freedom. Accept from me my memory, my understanding, and my will. You have given me everything I have or hold dear. I return it to you, that it may be governed by your will. Give me only your grace and the gift of loving you, and I will be rich enough. I will ask for nothing more. Amen. This prayer represents a certain template or pattern of my spiritual journey. In the prayer, there's three things that we offer to God. We offer our memory, our understanding, sometimes translated as intellect, and our will. So the story of my life in Jesus Christ is the story of how Jesus came to me and asked me to give him those three things, my memory, my intellect, and my will. Now, I'm 32 years old. I've been married for five years. I have four earrings, three children, two tattoos, and one wife. I work in a software company as a business analyst. Uh, I work with a software package, a financial accounting software package, aimed at insurance company accountants. It's every bit as glamorous as it sounds. <laughs> now, that's a snapshot of what I am, but I'd like to dial the clock back a little bit and talk about who Jesus Christ has called me to be. Right? The first thing in the prayer of self-dedication that I offer is my memory. So I want to take a little look at my past, how Jesus called me quietly, gently, but persistently all throughout my life. I was born here in Cedar Rapids, baptized at All Saints Parish. My godfather was a priest that some of you may remember, Father James Blocklinger, a very holy priest. I had very fond memories of visiting him as a child. And my godmother was a woman named Mae Kroger whose life, as far as I knew her, consisted of praying, serving others, and baking cookies. <laughs> and the occasional bingo game, of course. See, God places in our lives these models of holiness through the people that he puts in our lives. The lives of my godparents, these lives of persevering prayer, of quiet service, are what allowed me later on in life to really hear God's call for me. I also firmly believe that without the prayers of Father Blocklinger and May, along with the many, many prayers of my mother for me, <clears throat> channeling a little bit of St. Monica, right? I believe without those prayers, I would not be standing here in the power of Christ today. Don't ever doubt your ability to transmit the saving love of Jesus Christ through your prayers and through a life of faith lived with integrity. Now, growing up, my parents divorced when I was very young. A few years later, my mom remarried. My father eventually would fall away from the church, but I grew up going to Catholic schools, K through 12, here in Cedar Rapids, graduating from Xavier in 2001. So I grew up in the arms of the church, so to speak, uh, but I grew up at a time when catechesis was still 
pretty poor, or at least the parts I paid attention to, all right? I didn't know my faith. I didn't have a strong understanding of the sacraments. I went to Mass every Sunday, but I don't think I made a good confession until I returned to the church at age 22. In fact, growing up, I sort of made it a point not to go to confession. Now, how many here went to Catholic schools, at least for a few years, sent your kids to Catholic schools? Show me some love. Yeah? Anybody? Good. Oh, yeah, a lot of you. All right. So you know how it is. A couple times a year, they cart you over to the, uh, to the church, like right now during Lent, uh, give you the opportunity to confess. Well, eventually I realized nobody's checking off a list. Nobody's paying attention to who goes into the box and who doesn't. So I stopped going. But before I stopped going, I remember one year, I was sitting there thinking of sins to tell the priest. Not sins that I committed, just something to tell him. <laughs> something that a, a boy my age might have done. And so I went in there, and later on I'm recalling this, uh, you know, recounting this incident to a friend of mine, and my friend wasn't the holiest person, uh, and yet he was shocked, he was appalled, and rightly so. He, he lied? You lied to the priest? In confession? But I was afraid. Right? I was afraid of admitting I was wrong. I was afraid of taking an honest look at myself. And to be fair, I wasn't a bad kid at first. I was mostly just a lazy kid. In fact, as time went on, I came to perfect the art of being lazy. See, anybody can just be lazy. That's pretty easy. I didn't want to just be lazy. I wanted to be secretly lazy. Do you know how you'd be secretly lazy? To make other people think that you work hard when you really don't? To make your life something of a deception? You gotta lie, right? You gotta learn to lie. So I made it a habit to lie. And let me give you some examples. Now, I'm gonna give you some examples, but I don't want you to take it the wrong way. I don't want to minimize the lying, right? It affected every part of my life my relationships with my family and friends. But I'm going to give you the example uh, during school because it's a little easier to relate to. So it started out small, not lying, just lazy. Uh, doing homework at the last minute, you know, cramming for the test uh, the morning of. Those are things that I think we all did from time to time. I pretty much did them exclusively. But as time goes on, you want to make the game a little more complex. You want to challenge yourself, see what you can get away with doing, or not doing, rather. So you read the book, uh, excuse me, write the book report without reading the book, without watching the movie, no Cliff's Notes. Right, a movie's two hours long. Right? Cliff's Notes, some of those Cliff's Notes are like 50 pages. Ain't nobody got time for that. And it went on from there. You know, you would write the lab report without doing the lab, the research paper, and so on. Sometimes it would turn to cheating, finding out the questions to the test from somebody who took it a few periods before you. During my senior year in high school, I acquired access to the attendance system. Uh, I acquired the substitute teacher access, so it was a all-access pass. That allowed me to skip school, and yet to mark my absence as excused so that I wouldn't get in trouble the next day. By the time I came to my last class senior year, U.S. government. The end of the class, we had to turn in our books, and we got new textbooks that year. And so I went to turn in my book, and my government teacher, Mr. Schulte, Coach Schulte, some people here know Coach Schulte, yeah? 
All right, it's been a while since I've channeled my inner Coach Schulte, but I'll give it a try. Coach Schulte takes the book, and he looks at me, that glint in his eye, right? And he opens it up a little bit, and he cocks his head like he's listening for something. And he says to me, See, Lau? Still makes that nice crack in the spine when you open it, doesn't it, Silao? <laughs> he knew. He knew I hadn't opened that book once all semester. I'm, I'm giving you snippets of my memories here, but I'm going to stop and talk about memory as a concept for a minute. I promise not to get too technical, but in a theological sense, the memory is a much bigger thing than what we assign to it in modern American English. Right? The memory has been studied by saints and scholars throughout church history. One such saint, St. Augustine, makes it clear that when we talk about the memory, we're not just talking about things we recall, events from our past, or even the ability to recite Shakespeare. Those are all aspects of our memory, yes. But our experience of colors and shapes and sounds and words allow us to picture new concepts, picture new things. For example, we'll do a little, little exercise here. You can close your eyes if you want. You don't have to. But you can bow your eyes, close your head. <laughs> and I want you to picture for me a house. And it's a purple house. And it's got a roof on it. Bright green, bright green roof. A bright green roof with pink polka dots. And this house is a chimney. And the chimney is sort of billowing out smoke. But as you take a closer look, you notice that the smoke isn't just smoke. It's got a funny kind of texture. It almost looks like tin foil, aluminum foil, billowing out like smoke. Now, I'm willing to bet that none of you have ever seen this house in real life, or even in the movies. But I'm also willing to bet that you had no trouble picturing it. You can open your eyes if you haven't. I'm willing to bet you had no trouble picturing it. Why is that? It's because of the things we put into our minds, what I'm going to call the vocabulary of our memory. The sights, the sounds, the colors, the feelings, the smells, all of these things we're able to use to picture these new concepts. So our vocabulary of the memory, the things that we put into our minds, is going to radically change how we think. It's going to radically change how we act. And ultimately, it's radically going to change how we respond to God. So I want to take a look at this concept of vocabulary of the memory. Now, at this point in my life, at high school, after high school, around that time, you can see that what we've done is we've deadened my conscience. Right? We did this by my unwillingness to examine my conscience, my unwillingness to confess my sins, We've devoted my life to being as lazy as possible so that I can do what I want to do, and yet we've built up this wall of deception by clinging doggedly to the vice, the habit of lying. It's a dangerous cocktail for life. But I want to throw one more thing into the mix, because this vocabulary of the memory, this concept of what we put into our minds, would come to be the decisive battleground for my soul. See, being a lazy kid growing up, I had a lot of free time on my hands. I had a lot of free time. I wasn't doing homework. I think we've established that. Um, let me put it this way. I did less homework in my 13 years of schooling combined than you did in any one single year of your schooling. So I wasn't doing homework. 
what was I doing? What was I doing with my time? It wasn't all bad. I read a lot. I played with the neighborhood kids. I was involved in a lot of extracurricular activities in high school. But I watched a lot of TV. I watched a lot of movies. I listened to a lot of music, and I played a lot of video games. And when we got the internet in my house in eighth grade, I spent a lot of time in front of the computer screen. I've always been a night owl, so I would stay up late, watch TV, uh, watch movies, really just absorb any kind of entertainment that I could. Now, a lot of people make a big deal about sex and violence in our media, and those things are a problem. They were a problem for me, they were a problem for everybody, I think. But my main problem was not the sex and the violence, it was the sheer volume of things that I was consuming, right? The sheer volume of useless images and sound bites that I was putting into my head. This is before my iPhone or my Surface, right? The sheer volume of fruitless vocabulary of the memory just being poured in here. That was before memes were popular. <laughs> so I had all this stuff going into my head all this noise, and amidst of all this noise in high school, I stopped going to Mass. I stopped going to Mass, and after high school, I kind of got tired of the school game, and early on, my freshman year at the University of Iowa, I dropped out, got tired of it, moved home, and I got a job. I got a job at a television station, working third shift, midnight to 8 a.m., as a master control operator. Kind of an ironic title. At that point in my life, I was a master of control, controlling what people thought of me, controlling what people did for me. But that's not what a master control operator does at a television station. An MCO at a TV station is responsible for airing the programs, the commercials, recording programs to air later, monitoring the equipment. Essentially, I was being paid to watch TV for eight hours a day. So you can kind of picture it. I had this array of monitors in front of me. In my mind, I looked a little bit like Hugh Jackman and Swordfish. And so I'm not just watching the show that I'm airing. I'm watching two or three shows that I'm recording at all times. And then there's another TV, a personal TV, that's hooked up to cable, so you can watch whatever you want. If you get really bored, you can start swinging the satellite dishes around, and you can find anything. Of course, to top it off, for good measure, there was internet in the building, so I would bring my laptop in with me on the overnight shift, and I would have a heyday all night. Internet, movies, TV, the works. Now, I'm not trying to belabor the point, but here's the problem. We live in this culture of instant gratification, and it's because all the garbage that we're pouring into our heads stresses instant gratification. You know, I got to feeling at a certain point that I was really hearing God. I was really hearing Him, but I was, I was having trouble, right? Having trouble. Maybe it was the noise. Right? That happens to a lot of us. We start to hear God in our lives, and then we want the strength to do His will. And we want that strength instantly, right? Instant gratification. We want that strength right now. And even that's not so bad. But we're unwilling to give up the vocabulary of our mind. We're unwilling to give up our TV shows, 
our Reddit habit, constant stream of music, whatever it might be. We just want to add God here and there. We want to add God here and there, maybe when our Netflix queue is, is drying up, right? The vast majority of people who I meet, who are my age or younger especially, who are really listening for God, really searching for God, and asking for God's strength to do his will, should first, I think, be asking God to accept their memory. Right? That's what I should have been asking. I should have been praying, God, accept my memory. Everything I put into my mind, I will put in as an offering to you. Let me say that again. Everything I put into my mind, I put in as an offering to you. Now, if we really pray that in earnest, if you prayed that and meant that, would that change what you put into your mind? Would that change what you watch, what you listen to, what you say and do? It would have drastically changed what I was doing with my life. So after graduating from high school, shortly thereafter, I started dating my wife, Abby. I started dating Abby, and so we were dating when I got the job, when I dropped out of college. My commitment to God at this point was pretty much nil. My concept of God was pretty muddy. Uh, but Abby had grown up in the Methodist church. And so naturally this concept of Protestantism intrigued me a bit. So I started going to church with Abby. On Sundays we would go to church. I would listen to the sermon. I would critique the sermon afterwards because, of course, I knew better. <laughs> right? Uh, but I would go and I would listen and... Well, let me ask you this, I guess. Do you really think that I was in church just because I was following a girl? Yes, yes, that's right. And so were you. I know there's a few guilty parties out there. It started out that way, it did. But I grew to have some interest in the faith, at least as an intellectual exercise. Right? I sort of stumbled upon this intellectual smorgasbord uh, that Protestantism affords you, where you can argue any belief you have as long as you argue it from the Bible. Oh, I like arguing. I'm good at arguing. I didn't spend eight years in competitive mock trial because I didn't like to argue. So I started working through the Bible on my own terms. You know where that leads. Of course, becomes the Gospel of Alec. Right? It comes the, comes the Gospel of Alec, and what I like, I keep, and what I don't like, I cleverly argue against. You know, that's a temptation. When we read the Bible apart from the church, that's a temptation, is to read ourselves back into it. But that's a temptation for all of us, even outside the Bible with the faith, to get rid of the things that we don't like, or maybe the things that we don't understand about the faith. Right? Bear in mind, while all this is going on, I'm still filling my head with garbage, and personality-wise, I'm basically a lying, arrogant jerk. There's no nice way to put that. Nobody wrote that line for me on the flyer. I wrote that line. <laughs> uh, but it was true. You know, whether it was me dating multiple girls and trying to keep them from finding out about each other, they always do, or whether it was going out with my friends and being the one who makes fun of everybody. And not in a lighthearted way, because I still make fun of Kevin all the time in a lighthearted way. But in a way that was vicious, right? In a way that would 
tear people down to make me feel better. It's cliche, but that's how I was. That's who I was. Let me put it this way. If you had put me in a room with a clone of myself, I would not have been able to tolerate me. It's very angry, very frustrated, very intolerant person. But Abby, by the grace of God, tolerated me. Most of the time. Most of the time she tolerated me. And in 2003, near the end of Abby's freshman year in Kirkwood, on April 1st, ha ha, we had our first child together. My son, Marcus. We weren't married, of course. Well, the Gospel of Alec has some pretty large holes in the morality section, doesn't it? And I was a bad father to Marcus at that time. I was a bad father during those early years because I was living for myself. I was living for myself. I wasn't living the life that God was calling me to live. And after two more years of that, two more years of living more or less the same life, my intellectual side finally got the better of me. You see, God created us for truth. God created us to seek truth. Not just me, you too. We're all created to seek that, to sort of hone in on that. And God himself is truth, so to seek one is to seek the other. Now, at this time, I kind of come back to the University of Iowa a little bit. I was taking a lot of religious studies classes under the auspices of the rabbi, Dr. J. Holstein. And I was trying to figure out everything. I was trying to figure out the answers to everything. Actually, I wasn't trying to just figure out the answers. I was trying to create the answers for everything. I was trying to stuff God into this mold. But he is the creator, and I'm just the creature. And I am made in his image, and he will not conform to the images of convenience that I had set up for him. So I came to this, this breaking point. I think a lot of people come to the same breaking point. I'm asking myself all kinds of questions. Who is God? Is God real? What is truth? Is there even such thing as truth? Right? Pilate asks Jesus the same thing. Quidus veritas. What is truth? And when we ask ourselves those questions, there are as many responses, reactions, as there are people. My response at that point in my life was to panic. I panicked intellectually. Not just like a moment of panic. It was a sort of pervasive feeling of panic. I started to think, wait a minute, what if there's no truth? What if there's no such thing as truth? Bear in mind, I'd suffered from depression most of my life, sometimes severe. Now, God, years later, would heal me of that depression, but that's another story for another time. At this point in my life, I'm still dealing with depression on a regular basis, and now I'm starting to think that there's no such thing as God, there's no such thing as truth. I know many of you have suffered depression. I don't have to tell you what happens when you get a depressed emotional state with these conclusions of despair. Right, things can get a little rough. Things got a little rough. Things got a little rough. Set that aside, though. In a nutshell, on the grounds of insufficient evidence, I was through with God. I was through with God. But God was not through with me. 
It was at this breaking point that God sent into my life someone to speak to me with his voice. I was reunited with an old classmate. Reunited with an old classmate who I am convinced God sent into my life in order to turn me back to him. Now, hindsight is twenty twenty. I have the benefit of seeing that clearly now. But at the time, that relationship was destroyed by my behavior, right? At the time, there was a lot of Alec to work through. There wasn't this instantaneous change. But through conversation and through the witness of my classmate who could lose a theological argument with me and still maintain their faith, through the witness of my classmate who lived out their faith, in love, in prayer, in service. It was through the witness of my classmate that I came to think that maybe, just maybe, there is such a thing as truth. Not only truth, but a truth that we could know. And so through conversations and through reading a lot of books, ooh, reading a lot of books, I'm a big bibliophile. If anybody wants to corner me downstairs afterwards and talk books, uh, I'll be happy to oblige. Through reading a lot of books, God was able to re-educate me right, in his truth. God was able to teach me truth instead of me trying to create my own truth. Right? So I was doing this. I was reading a lot of books. I was understanding new things, new ways of, of thinking about God. See, we all have this need to view our world as ordered, right? As, as logical, whatever makes the most logical sense. Now, I told you I worked in software, and in my industry, in the software industry, in the IT industry, you have a lot of young atheists, a lot. I know people, I work with people, who will mockingly invoke uh, the name of Cthulhu or the flying spaghetti monster, right? People who think that God is a joke, or a delusion, as Richard Dawkins would put it. And if we want to share our faith with the growing number of people who say they have no need for God or religion, we have to understand what they think about God and religion. Right? If the Christian concept of God was really like the flying spaghetti monster, this sort of mythical creature, all-powerful, can do whatever he wants, just kind of flies around and and, and does what he pleases, that's absurd, right? That doesn't make any sense. Of course I wouldn't believe it. Neither should you. But that's a straw man, right? That's not what the church teaches about God. That's not what the Bible teaches about God. That's not what theology and philosophy tell us about God. That's not what science tells us about God. I think there's a lot of confusion when people look at me. Look at my age, look at my profession. They say, how can you have faith? How can you adhere to this religion? Aren't you smarter than that? Don't you, don't you know better than that? And when I talk to atheists, I don't mince words. I say, look, I've studied the greatest philosophers in human history, the greatest scientists, the greatest architects of human thought. And I've come to the conclusion, just like many of them did, that the most reasonable, 
rational, logical explanation for our world, the reality that we experience, is belief in God and belief in his church and the Holy Catholic Church. So through the witness of my classmate, I was being called to give over my intellect, my understanding to God, to let him teach me, to let him shape me. I cannot overstate this. I had a strong intellectual conversion at this point. I came back to the church, right? Frequent confession, daily mass, rosary, prayer, reading the scriptures, reading the lives of the saints. God had started this fire within me, and I started to feel and realize that God had a plan for my life, a purpose for my life. It's the same purpose he has for your life. Baltimore Catechism probably puts it best because it puts it simply. We're here to know God, to love God, and to serve God in this world. You've all heard the tune. And to be with him forever in the next. It's interesting that my loving God, my serving God, is predicated on my knowing God, right? It falls on the heels of my knowing God. So I had to learn to know God. I had to approach God in prayer. In sacrament and in study. All three of those things were essential. Prayer, sacrament, and study. That's how I came to know God. And the more I came to know God, the more I realized that to really know him, to really understand him to my full potential, I had to have the requisite tools, right? I had to have the right vocabulary of the mind. That means I had to give God my memory. Memory of my past, yes, the things I had done. But also my memory right now. I had to clean house, so to speak. The things I was watching, the things I was listening to, the games I was playing, what I was spending my time on. And I was afraid of that. I was afraid that that would mean I could never have any fun. I could never enjoy anything. But, you know, the world that God wants to give us is so much bigger than the world that we see, than this little petty world that we cling to oftentimes. And I learned that I didn't have to be afraid to give God everything because I learned that you can't outgive God. You can't outgive God. The final leg of my journey was in some ways the hardest. Giving my will over to God was a concept that I couldn't even picture at first. I was fine with getting to know God. I was even fine giving up some habits in order to make room for God in my life, in order to spend some more time and energy getting to know him. But I still wanted God compartmentalized, right? You know what I'm saying? I still wanted God in a box. I was willing to give him a bigger box now, but I wasn't willing to give myself over to him completely. I think part of me must have thought that if I just went to Mass, if I just prayed enough, just read the scriptures enough, that somehow I wouldn't really have to make this decision to do God's will, God would kind of take over for me, right? God's will would just look very attractive. It would be easy to do. But, uh, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. So I got stuck. 
I got stuck where I think a lot of people get stuck. I came to a place of understanding, but I didn't really want to act fully on it. Came to a place of understanding. I think a lot of people come to that same place of understanding that I did. And I'll tell you why I think that. You see, when I was living for myself, when I was living this pagan life, my life was misguided, tragic even. But my actions made a certain amount of sense. What do I mean? It means my actions reflected my faith. Or more to the point, my actions reflected my lack of faith. But when I came to know Jesus Christ and the power of his love, when I had enough faith to say, yes, I believe in God the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. And yet I was unwilling to do what God was asking me to do. Well, I became something in between pagan Alec and Christian Alec. Anybody know what's in between there? I became a hypocrite. I became a hypocrite. As Christians, we often have to bear the accusation of hypocrisy. And in my case, it was true. So many would-be Christians stop themselves short from making Jesus Christ the Lord of their lives. I knew the truth. I knew the truth of what God was calling me to do. But I was unwilling to go. I was unwilling to go where that truth was, was leading me. I wanted to use the world and my life, my plans, my desires as this safety net. Right, as a safety net in case God's plans for me didn't turn out the way I wanted them to. I wanted to work with a safety net. After all, God had my memory. He had my intellect. Did he really need my will? As it turns out, no. No, he does not. God does not need my will. But it's true to say that I needed to give God my will for me. Why is that? Well, simply put, it's because I need God. What does that mean? That means I need fulfillment. I need purpose. So do you. Right? We're all made for this. As human beings, we're designed to seek out purpose and fulfillment for our lives. And God has designed us so that the purpose and fulfillment of our lives is found in him. <laughs> So in order to receive God fully, I needed to give myself to God fully. Let me say that again. In order to receive God fully, I have to give myself over to him fully. Just like my marriage. I have to give myself over to my wife fully. Or it's not a marriage, it's not going to work. If you ever have any trouble trying to figure out the church's teaching, God's teaching on marriage and sexuality and family life, start there. Start with the pillar of total self-giving. And if you look at total self-giving and it's lacking in some way, shape, or form, or completely, you have a disordered relationship. It's all about total, uninhibited self-giving. That's the kind of self-giving God has for us. That's the kind of self-giving that Jesus Christ gave for us on the cross. That's why St. Paul, in the letter to the Ephesians, talks about Jesus being married to the church. Talks about Christ giving himself fully to the church. Jesus Christ was no hypocrite. 
Jesus practiced what he preached. If I'm to bear his name, the name of Christ, the name of Christian, I have to act on my faith. I have to give myself fully over to God. Right? This idea of integrity and the unity of our faith and our life, that's the only Christian life there is. Unity of faith and life is the Christian life. If we're not doing that, we're doing it wrong. So many people, myself included, so many people are a washout for the Lord Jesus Christ because we're willing to say, we're proud to say that we believe. But we're not willing to act. We don't want to act on that faith. So how did I go about giving my will over to God? Slowly. Slowly. Uh, It took a lot of time. And in some ways that's okay. It is a process. It does take time. But most of that time was spent with me being afraid. Right? Being afraid of letting go of me. Of letting God shape me. I was afraid of that. But I did start to let myself go. And I want to share a few ways that I did that. The first way is back there. You're all supposed to look. Do you know what's back there? You know what's back there. Confession. Confession. The sacrament of confession. The sacrament of healing. The sacrament of mercy. The sacrament is such a beautiful gift, and I missed out on it a lot as a child. And I found that if you're struggling to overcome sin in your life, particular sin, sin in general, the best thing you can do that I found, frequent examination of conscience, reception of sacramental confession, reception of the Holy Eucharist, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, that right there, that is the healing power of God in action. Confession was a huge breakthrough for me. Another way that I started to let go of me was to increase my prayer life. I did this with the guidance from a spiritual director, a priest, uh, Father O'Connor, actually. From, he's at St. Joseph's now. I spent four years with Father O'Connor, and he spent the time teaching me, by the way, don't blame him for any, anything. <laughs> I spent that time, and Father O'Connor helped me to learn to listen for God's voice in my life. Help me to listen to God's call in my life. But I think the biggest milestone occurred a little over five years ago. Uh, Abby and I have been dating off and on for years. The off was usually due to my intolerable personality. Uh, And back in 2007, we'd had our second child together, Sophia. As a matter of fact, that was 2007, March 18th. My daughter, here in the front row, is eight today. Give her some birthday love. Thank you. So we had had Sophia, and shortly after that, Abby started attending Mass with me on Sundays. No intention of becoming Catholic, uh, but she was always very good about going to church every Sunday, so she started going with me. And we did that for a couple years, and over the course 
of a few years, we grew to trust one another. And we grew to trust God and start to understand where God was calling us. And in the fall of 2009, Abby started RCIA here at St. Wenceslaus. Again, no real plan of joining the church, uh, but she had been attending here, so she kind of wanted to know a little bit more about this Catholic thing. I tried teaching her, but uh, it didn't work out so well. I don't, I don't know why those conversations uh, never went as smoothly as I thought they should. <laughs> but Abby started going to RCIA, and I started attending those classes with her to support her. And during that process... We began to first understand and then embrace and then really love the church's teaching, God's teaching for marriage and family life. And we knew the direction that God was calling us in our life. We knew we had to get ourselves right with God, get ourselves right with his church. And so on January 30th, 2010, Father Podaski married us here on this very altar. Thank you. Thanks to God. It gets better. It gets better. At the wedding ceremony, my son Marcus and my daughter Sophia were (coughs) baptized finally. Uh, And so we had a communal wedding. For years, the kids would refer to it as our wedding, not just my wedding and her wedding. Our wedding. Uh, It was a beautiful thing. A few months later, shortly before the Easter vigil, Abby, still holding out, no intention of joining the church, uh, but then the Holy Spirit, or Father Podaski, I'm not sure which, but one of them <laughs> worked their magic. She did a 180, and she was received into the church Easter five years ago. Thank you to that. Yes, yes. So it was four and a half years. Four and a half years between the time I came back to the church functionally and the time I was able to really enter the church fully with my family. That was four and a half years of standing on the edge of the pool, knowing I should jump, telling myself I should jump, but failing to do so. But eventually I did. Eventually I did, and people ask, well, what changed in your life? And the simplest answer to that, the answer that anybody gives uh, who has given their life to Jesus Christ, is still the truest answer. Everything. Everything changed. Now, it's not a magic pill for health and vitality. It's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's not a moneymaker, sadly. (laughs) It's not a relationship fixer, even more sadly. (laughs) A decision to give your life to Christ, a decision to give your will to God is a plan of life. It's a way to order my day around prayer and the love of God, a way to order my day around the knowledge that I'm a son of God, right? I'm a child of God, and to act on that. So what types of things change? Well, my relationship did get better. My relationships got better. As my relationship with God grew, my relationship with my wife and my kids got better. Is that because God magically fixed it? No. But it's because I began to see God's plan for me as a husband and as a father. See, 
my first mission field, right, my primary focus on evangelization, my own personal apostolate begins with my family. And so does yours. Your personal apostolate begins with your family. I have to, to demonstrably show my family the love of God. Right? I have to show my children the actions of a loving father because that's how they're going to relate to God the Father as they get older. And it's not always easy, right? Maybe it's never easy. Maybe it's never easy, but when you make that decision, and it's a decision you have to make hour after hour and day after day, but when you make that decision, you don't make it alone, right? I pray for God's strength. God supplies the strength to accomplish his will. I just have to cooperate with it, right? My earthly power would fail every time, but God would supply the strength. In fact, sometimes I don't give my will to God. He allows me to do that. He doesn't take away our free will. Sometimes I don't give my will over to God, and it's times like those that I'm reminded of why my life was as broken as it was. It's times like those that I remember which direction the ship goes when I'm steering it. Right? What else has changed? My job is better. My work is better. Is that because God cured me of my laziness? No. No, but it's because I've come to realize I can sanctify myself and others through my work. Right? Remember I talked about Jesus Christ and his total self-giving. Jesus wants full communion with us. Full communion with us. And so I can offer up work that I do that is well done, and I can offer it up in union with the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And Jesus' work will sanctify my work. I can offer up sufferings in my life in union with the sufferings of Jesus Christ on the cross. And by the merits of Jesus Christ's suffering, my suffering becomes fruitful. All by the merits of Christ, all for the glory of God. But he invites us to share in that. That is powerful. So my work got better. But you know, it's not always easy. And I think more than ever, we have to combat this characterization of Christians as hypocrites. So by working hard and cheerfully, by working hard and cheerfully in my job, God can use me to attract people to himself doesn't mean it's necessarily easier to deal with a problem client or a grumpy coworker. It's not. But God gives meaning to our lives. He gives purpose to our work. He gives supernatural purpose to our natural work. And if we hold on to that, we cling to that, there are great graces and peace that comes with that. Jesus Christ wants to be the Lord of your life. He wants to be the Lord of your life, not because of what you can do for him, but because of what he is waiting to give to you. So whatever piece of yourself that you're afraid to give up, right, whatever safety net you think you're working with, 
God has something infinitely greater to give you in its place. If you're struggling to hear God, you're struggling to listen for the voice of God in your life, and you haven't given him your memory, clear out the garbage. Clear out the garbage. Tune in to God and let his word and his sacraments saturate your mind. If you're struggling to understand God, to understand truth, because you haven't given over your intellect to him, seek God out in prayer and study. Come to the saints. Come to Christ's church, the Catholic church, our great mother and teacher. Learn from her wisdom. Learn from her truth. And if you're like I was, you're standing at the edge of the pool, knowing God's will for you, but you're too proud, too scared, to give up your will in exchange for his, ask God for that strength. Say, God, I offer you my will. And then take that leap of faith. Please kneel with me in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Lord, take all my freedom. Receive from me my memory, my understanding, and my will. You have given me all that I have or hold dear. I return it to you, that it may be governed by your will. I ask only for your grace and the gift of loving you, and I will be rich enough. I will ask for nothing more. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. God love you. Please pray for me.